First Kings 9, 4 through 7. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. 1 Kings 11.6 So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Second Chronicles 36, 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This is cool up here. Thanks, John, for leading us with some hymns. It ties in well with our theme through Kings and Chronicles today, talking about generational faithfulness and always looking ahead to the next generation. Maybe now the king is coming. And these hymns, we don't always sing them. They're quite unfamiliar to most of us, but... They tie us to a previous generation of saints who looked forward to more and more faithful generations. So thank God for these lasting, enduring truths that we get to sing with the saints. Let's pray and ask God that that same spirit that inspired the saints for millennia would be with us to understand his word. Father, you are good and kind to, before the foundations of the earth, plan that we would be in this place with all the things going on in our lives, all the chaos that we feel and the lack of control that we experience. God, you planned this moment to remind us of your son whom you plan to send as a propitiation, a satisfaction of your wrath on our sins who accomplished salvation for us in order to send your spirit to live in us, to reveal to us your truth, to help us turn from our sin and look forward to keep on going, to press on until he returns to restore all things. God, we long for that day. And even as we look around us today and wonder what is happening in our world, where is God in all of it? Help us be certain. Help us be faithful to your promise that you, Jesus, are returning soon. May our kids be the last generation to delight in that truth, to see Him return and make all things new. God, we long for that and pray that this message 
would help us cling to those promises even more. Amen. If you haven't already in your life, someday, probably very soon, there is going to come a time where you're going to slow down and look around you and ask yourself, what happened? How did we get here? What a mess we are in. For some of you that may have happened already personally, you've had this realization that you need a lot of help escaping the troubles and the habits that have destroyed your life. For many of you, it might come when you're scrolling through your social media feed or you're watching the news or some people still do this, read a newspaper. And you read something And it just comes upon you how sad and troubled our entire country is. Stories of addiction and depression and suicide. Abortion kills 3,000 kids in our country every single day. Racial tensions seem to be escalating, not improving. Marriages falling apart. Kids, most kids not knowing what it feels like to grow up with mom and dad. Our government and large corporations have more control over our lives than ever before. A majority of young people believe that communism is probably a better economic system that we should try out. And so, hey, I recommend you all hand over your lives to those in charge who know better than you how to run it. Gender and sexual confusion, promiscuity celebrated in our media and by our corporations. (sighs) That's just the tip. Political strife everywhere. People wondering, what about that dream that Martin Luther King Jr. had? What about the dream that our founders had that we could work towards freedom and prosperity? How did we get here? It all came upon us just so fast. We had those founding ideals that didn't say... This is what we have, but these are the virtues we are going to strive for. And we've looked at them and said, we're going to go this direction. And now many are asking, what does the future hold for us? Are are our kids going to know prosperity and peace as our some of our forebears did? Or is it even a good idea to have kids? Do we want to bring kids into the mess that's coming? And where is God in all of this? These are questions that many of you have asked and probably will ask someday soon. But they're not new questions. Actually, the people of Israel had to wrestle through all of these things as well as they their city laid flattened, ruined, and they're pushed from behind by spears and swords off into a new city where they need to embrace a new culture. Forced to abandon their principles and their identity, their corporate identity and fear for their children's future. These are the thoughts that people are wrestling with through the experience that we're told about in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And these books are telling us that worldly leaders will fail you, but Christ will preserve his people. Worldly leaders will fail you, but Christ will preserve His people. 
And so our outline today is just going to be, hopefully, a quick summary through the book of Kings. We have two. It's actually just one. They ran out of scroll space. And the book of Chronicles, also just one. They didn't, you didn't make big enough books back then. The book of Kings reveals to us the downfall of a nation when its rulers turn away from God. But then the book of Chronicles gives us new lenses on the same story to inspire the preservation of hope. God is still working and our job is to pass that hope on to the next generation. So before we jump into these huge books that we're going to cover over the next two and a half hours. I'm not kidding. Yes, I am. Let's just briefly remember where we've come from in this story of the Bible series. We're, we're trying to rush through, in over a year, the entire Bible, one book at a time, to give you an idea of what the whole story is. You have all these scriptures memorized, or your favorite Bible verses. How did they relate to this big story? So that you can, in your life, when you experience troubles and trials and difficulties and questions... You know the story and you know the answers the prophets and apostles gave to the Israelites. And you can apply those to your life as well. So let's start at the beginning, rush up to the books of Kings and Chronicles. In the beginning, the book of Genesis tells us everything was very good. It was very good. No sin. God made everything good, but humanity worked with Satan to undo it all. But... Not really. We don't have that kind of power over God. God's, God's plan was not thwarted to fill the earth with his image bearers. So God promised after they fell, God promised Eve that one of her sons one day would come and crush the head of the serpent and restore everything and undo all the corruption. And God's people have been looking for that man ever since. Someone's born. Is he the one? He just talked back to his mama. Definitely not the one. And then Abraham comes along. And we think maybe he's the one. His life revealed he also wasn't the one. But God promised Abraham that one of his sons would lead a great nation. Where all the nations of the earth would come and receive blessing from them. But it seemed like that promise wasn't coming true when they ended up in Egypt. So God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt into a new land where they could finally be that nation. In the, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he gave them laws to help them become a wise and righteous people that would draw all the nations back into a relationship with God. And then the book of Joshua. It seems like victory is at hand. We're about there. They plow into the land And they begin this relationship with God and the book of Judges shows them throw it all away. There's no king in the land to help lead them in the right direction. But the book of Ruth tells us that king is coming soon. Any day now, any generation now, it's coming. And we make it to the book of Samuel that Jake preached on last week. In chapter 8, the people recognize we need a king. Someone needs to lead us in righteousness. They beg Samuel, go talk to God for us. Give us a king. And God consents. 
He promises to give them a king, but he warns them as he does, your hearts are in the wrong place. You don't really want a righteous king. You just want to be like the, uh, to have a king just like the nations instead of a king just like me. In Deuteronomy 17, he had told them what a king would look like who would lead them in righteousness. Someone who is utterly devoted to God, meditates on the word day and night, as Psalm 1 says. Someone who doesn't store up for themselves wealth, amass these large armies and marry foreign women in order to create these alliances with other nations. The first king, Saul, that they had clearly did not meet expectations. But quickly, David comes on the scene and this looks really good. He's a man after God's heart. Maybe he's the promised seed of Eve, the son of Abraham. But we know how that went. David proved he was foolish and sinful as well. Was that the end of God's promises? No. That's why we're here, right? We know that's not the end. Last week, Jake preached on 2 Samuel 7. God promised, David, you're not the guy, but your son is going to be the guy. Your son's going to build the temple. Your son is going to have wisdom and lead the people to worship me. And he'll be the one to draw all nations to God in worship. So it's with that hope that we enter into the book of Kings. When you read the beginning of the book of Kings, you feel like, I know where this is going. This is so exciting. We're going to meet the great king. But by the end, you know, if you're reading this, it didn't turn out that way. This book of Kings highlights the downfall of the nation. At the end of the book, Jerusalem is destroyed. The king of Israel is in a Babylonian prison. The people are living like cattle in Babylon. Not exactly the fulfillment that they expected. And now they're asking, what happened? How did we get here? Let's back up to the beginning of the book. When David was dying, he was passing on his reign to his son Solomon. And David assumed Solomon would probably be the fulfillment of these promises. So he gives in chapter 2 some advice to his son, telling him, you got some big shoes to fill, son. Here's some wisdom to help you fill these expectations. And after his anointing as king, Solomon has a conversation with God. And God says in chapter 9, as for you... If you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, just as I promised David your father. Saying, this is from back in 2 Samuel 7, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and statues that I have set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, that's the temple, I will cast it out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. It'll just be a joke 
So there it is, pretty clear. If you want things to go well in your nation, Solomon, don't rule like those foreign kings who build up wealth and armies and get entangled in these foreign agreements. Focus your heart on God. Learn His wisdom. Worship Him. And trust God to work out all those details. And at first it seemed like Solomon did these things. It appeared that maybe he was the one, the the son of Eve, the seed of Abraham, and now the son of David who's going to sit on the throne forever. He unified the the people. He built this beautiful temple. That the Spirit of God came down and filled. And people came to worship. He had this amazing wisdom from Yahweh that no man ever before had. Rulers came from faraway countries to come and marvel at the grace and the wisdom bestowed upon these people. And then, just like every human in history... He fell. And he fell hard. He married hundreds of women to solidify these political alliances instead of trusting the alliance he had with God. He amassed these huge storehouses of gold and silver just to provide in case God doesn't take care of him. He created a huge army to be Israel's defense, not trusting God and His angels to come and fight for them. And so in 1 Kings 11, verse 6, it says, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father done. So what causes a nation to fall into chaos? One word simply, idolatry. Trusting anything but the mighty God of the universe. And immediately after Solomon's death, the nation falls into civil war. The kingdom splits in two. There's new temples built around the country for people to come and worship all kinds of gods. The leaders start oppressing the people with higher taxes and great labor for their pet projects. At points along the way, it gets so bad that in Jerusalem, in God's holy temple... Jewish people are sacrificing their own children on the altar of God. According to God's warning to Solomon, he should have wiped those people out. Israel had become worse than all the neighboring nations. Judgment should have been swift. But God did make some promises to Eve and Abraham and David And so mercifully, God killed a bad king and put a new one in place. And faithful Jews are thinking to themselves, maybe the next generation is going to be better. So we're going to have a bunch of kids and and trust that God's going to turn things around then. Thank God that bad king is gone. Maybe the next king will be the promised good one. But each one gets worse and worse. Twenty-five times in the book of Kings, The phrase is repeated, and this guy did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And sometimes God would send prophets to go call them back from the brink of destruction. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha and all those cool stories that 
that we read about them. But there's many more, men and women. These prophets aren't just people who have, have cool insights, secret stories to tell their friends, or, hey, I'm going to tell you the future, just so you know that you, you better go pick up some milk before you get home so your wife will be happy with you. Like, that's not prophecy. Prophets are watchdogs. They're covenant enforcers. You, sir, are not following the law. They go get the law of Moses and bring it out and say, right here, stipulation 326. You're breaking that one. And here's the consequence for that. If we keep worshiping other gods, God promised he would send a foreign nation to come and destroy us. A couple of times with Hezekiah and Josiah, these kings responded to this word preached. And they humbled themselves. They repented, tried to turn the nation around, but it wasn't enough because the next king came along and he was worse than anyone before. The people were already committed to their idolatry. There was no way to to turn their hearts from idolatry to worship the living God. And so the spiral downward continued until the Assyrians arrive in the northern kingdom and wipe them out. And the Babylonians arrive in Jerusalem and they destroy the city and they take all the people there and make a march to live in Babylon and lose their identity there. It was a rout. All of the wealth in their storehouses, all of the war horses in their stables, all of those foreign alliances proved worthless against the superpower nations that God raised up Simply for the purpose of judging his people for their idolatry. And it looked like it was over. The people wondered, whatever happened to God's promises? Twenty kings in succession and not a single one of them was the promised son of David. So maybe there's a little hope. The very last lines of this book of Kings... Tell us a short story about the king of Babylon releasing the king of Judah from prison and letting him come and eat at his table. Doesn't that inspire such confidence in God's promises? It's kind of weird. The people are still in Babylon. Jerusalem is still flattened. But the line of David is still alive. Maybe the king comes in the next generation. And this small thread of hope then is the emphasis of the book of Chronicles. It traces for us the theme of the preservation of hope. We're just going to zoom right to the end because it covers a lot of the same stuff. The very last statement in 2 Chronicles 36 verse 23 is kind of a key thing, key statement. It says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. They get to return. This may seem like a rather plain, ordinary decree from an ancient ruler, but the writer of Chronicles wants us to see hope in the next generation. Whether the Persian king Cyrus realized it or not, he was an instrument in fulfilling God's promises to Eve and Abraham and David. 
If you ever have read through the Bible, done this read through the Bible program, you get through all these books, you read first and second Samuel and that's pretty exciting with all these stories of David and the hope of him to come to the throne. Then you read Kings and all these battles are pretty cool. And then you get to Chronicles and you read through all those boring genealogies at the beginning. Oh, I don't get this. And, and then you start reading the stories and you go, wait a second. I, I read this already. I, I've done this. Why is this in here? Why am I wasting my time? Ah, I don't think God will be too upset if I just turn on over to Ezra and Nehemiah, right? It really does repeat a lot of what's already been covered, but that is intentional. Chronicles is written way long after Kings. The one who wrote it probably was part of the exile and he returned to Jerusalem to help them build the city walls and erect the new temple. And he wanted to summarize for God's people from the beginning, it starts with the name Adam, from the beginning to the return from exile, what God had done for his people to inspire hope that, you know, that temple that we built, it's pretty pathetic. It doesn't look very good. This can't be the fulfillment, but that next generation might be the one. That's the hope of the book of Chronicles. All looking to the next generation for the return of the king. It's because much of the Old Testament is so sad and discouraging. Story after story of failure, unfaithfulness, judgment. Ugh. It's heavy. The Chronicles takes those same stories and gives you different lenses to look through. To give you hope in the promised king. And hope in God's restored temple. You read the book of Kings and you, you just think, where is God in all this? Isn't he going to keep his promises? But Chronicles is telling us God is at work in all of it to keep his promises. In contrast to the book of Kings, there's so much more optimism. The stories of David's sin are conveniently left out. He's actually kind of lifted up as the ideal king that all the other kings should be compared to. Many of his descendants to the book of Kings say are evil. Well, they get a little bit more of a positive reputation in the book of Chronicles. The temple is shown as the crowning achievement of the kingdom as it displays the center of community life. And yeah, there was this unfortunate incident of its destruction. But there's optimism that it's going to be rebuilt to even greater glory than ever before. It's all those same stories, but communicating to the people that though the worldly rulers have failed, the Messiah will preserve his people. This is especially clear in these final phrases in the decree of King Cyrus, which point us to the greatest hope. The Messiah is coming and he's going to rebuild, rescue his people and rebuild his temple. If your Bible were that your Old Testament and your Bible were arranged the same way the Jews arranged the books of the Bible, the book of Chronicles would come as the very last book of the Old Testament. We're used to it coming after Kings, which is why we're preaching it now. But the Jews put it at the end of the, their Bible as a way of summarizing everything that happened and reminding themselves, despite everything that's been written, all the prophets who've come, the promises still stand. 
And so if you're finished reading your Old Testament and the last thing you read in Chronicles is let him go up. Wait for that king. You will turn the page to the book of Matthew and you will read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's here. He's the one. Jesus is the son of Eve, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the one that's going to build the temple and restore his people. He's the king who keeps the Deuteronomy 17 ideal. He didn't build for himself a great palace and, and collect a bunch of wealth. We're told in the Gospels, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He had no military power. He told his followers to lay down their weapons and refused to call the legions of angels by his side to rescue him. He had no wife to make foreign entanglements, political alliances. Who can negotiate with the king of heaven and earth? Jesus led his people in righteous worship, leading them to himself as the true temple. He offered his own life as the last sacrifice for the sins of all of his people. He rose from the dead to start a new creation, a new kingdom where all who follow him will join him in eternity. And he ascended into heaven where right now, today, he is sitting on his throne conducting the affairs of the earth. And he calls him to trust, calls us to trust him no matter what happens in this world. He is on the throne working out his promises until he arrives. Pass, calling us to pass on this hope to the next generation. To the next generation until he comes and makes it all new. No president, no governor, no mayor, senator, representative, prime minister or king is going to save any of us from our oppression or build a flourishing society that we desire, every one of them will fail you. But Christ will preserve His people. But even more than that, He empowers us to be instruments of His rebuilding until He returns. Compare Cyrus's decree at the end of Second Chronicles to Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. Cyrus, if you notice, says, God gave all authority on earth to me. And yet, he died and lost his kingdom. Jesus, after he died and rose from the dead, says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. He's the eternal king. Cyrus commanded the people of Judah to go home, build the temple, return to Jerusalem, but Jesus commands his followers to go build the new temple by making disciples. Cyrus blessed them saying, let God go with you. Jesus said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end. Jesus is the son of David that kings and chronicles hoped for. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He won the victory over Satan by stomping on his head on the cross, defeating your idolatry in his death and his resurrection. And now he empowers us by his spirit to confidently go out those doors into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces and proclaim hope that Jesus is alive and he is building his kingdom. 
And we look to the skies wondering, is this the generation that brings his return? This is the confidence these books give us. When the chaos all around us makes us wonder, what is going on? How did we get into this mess? The contrast of these books isn't just telling us, have a positive attitude. Look for the good in others. The book of Kings tells us there's not good in others. Unless Christ is working there. It tells us that God takes sin seriously. He will punish idolatry. He will cut sinful leaders out of their role when they harm their people. But the book of Chronicles tells us also that God is at work through all of it to redeem us and enable us to remain faithful. As we seek Him in each generation, He will be our King who provides for us and protects us. And so, what do we do? How do we respond in these chaotic times? We tend to really overcomplicate what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church. We panic and think, we need to do something big and amazing, something important. We've got to start a movement, maybe a protest, hold a rally. We're going to do that, hold a rally. Or we're going to turn out the vote to get our candidate elected. Build a social media following so we can bring awareness to our cause. Maybe become successful in our careers so we gain a platform. Then we'll turn the culture in the right direction. It's actually a lot simpler than that, friends. It's really quite ordinary, as Justin likes to promote. We just stay faithful to the covenant and train up the next generation to do the same. That's it. Stay faithful to the new covenant. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. Make a habit of reading His Word. Pray in dependence upon the King. The word pray means pleading to your authority. Gather with His people to worship Him. Be a committed part of a church family that goes into and walks through and comes out of exile together. Not letting our trials separate us. It also means being a prophetic voice in our culture where we speak up to injustice and ungodliness. We resist illegitimate authority that tries to take God's authority upon itself. And we proclaim confidence that even if we are exiled to the grave, we're going to return from that exile too and live forever with Christ. And finally... We're called to pass on this hope to the next generation. The great revolution that we desire or this revival that we pray for isn't going to come by overthrowing the government or getting the right candidates in place or discovering cures for diseases, becoming really important in our jobs. It's going to come when Christians gather to worship together. When we work together in our communities When we get married, congratulations you two, glad to have you back. When we have babies and adopt babies, and we train them to be faithful, to look to Jesus to come and make all things new. If you want some really particular, particular, specific action steps from the book of Kings and Chronicles, here they are. 
If possible, get married. If possible, make some babies. If you don't have your own family yet, if you're single, integrate yourself into the lives of other families and help them pass your faith on to the next generation. Or if you're older and your kids are gone already or grown up, get into the lives or invite us into your lives so we can train our kids up like you did yours. Help us young families and singles stay faithful to Jesus. God, I pray that we could have more older saints in our congregation to guide us towards faithfulness in the next generation. Think about our current crazy culture. This is super practical. It seemed like this ungodly cultural revolution has come upon us so fast. But the fruits of this worldview are also revealing themselves to be deadly, unfruitful, unable to reproduce. Those who are confused about if they're a boy or a girl, or if they should love boys or love girls, they're not able to make babies. Or those who have made an idol of, out of careers, they're choosing not to make babies. Or government is c- encouraging us to Abort our babies. All of these things together are causing many cultural analysts to predict a huge population collapse in the coming generations. God is handing over our society to its sins to reap its natural consequences. And who is going to be remain standing at the end of it? But faithful Christians who have brought others in, made babies, adopted babies, brought in spiritual children, passed on this faith to the next generation. We live in a chaotic world, brothers and sisters. Make you wonder, what happened? How did we get in this mess? But our path out of this mess is clear. All the worldly leaders will fail you. But Christ will preserve His people. Whether you're young or old, married or single, rich or poor, we must stick together as exiles in this world, stay faithful to our coming King, be a prophetic voice in the culture, and pass on hope in Christ to the next generation, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That is guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray by His authority. God, we thank you for this confidence in Christ. That we do not need to fear death. We do not need to fear cultural revolutions. We do not need to fear our political enemies ruling over us because Christ rules over it all. And he guarantees our place in his eternal kingdom. And oh God, we feel, we feel the depth of Sin and idolatry in this world, we want to be free from it. We feel the pain of death and sorrow and suffering, and we want to be released from it. Come, Lord Jesus. Even now, we look to you and say, will you come and rescue us? But we ask that by your Spirit, you would make us faithful. You would make us faithful to pass on this good news of the death and resurrection of Christ, that the next generation may live in the same anticipation and may join us forever in eternity with our King. Amen.